we have a little nigun and we have a, a poll and, um, and then we're going to jump in. one more time. There's two there's two ways you may have heard that one. One is with the the opening line to the Amida, right? Na 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 Oh Adoshem Na 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 Isafatai Tiftah. Right, you, right, you know what I'm talking about, and or you could do it to the chadodi. Na 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 the chadodi. Na 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 likrat kala. Na 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 penei shabbat, penei shabbat nekabela. Okay, friends, let's start with a poll here. We have a little poll here in regards to Purim this week. Purim this week on Thursday night, the Megillah. One question. The Megillah inspires me, troubles me, inspires me, and troubles me. What's Megillah Esther? <laughs> so if you're not sure what the Megillah is, you can say, what's Megillah Esther? If you just love the Megillah, you can say, inspires me, troubles me, inspires me, and troubles me. Cast your vote. Give it a few seconds here to see your vote. Hit it. Okay, let's see the results. Inspires me, 50%. Zero say troubles me. Half say inspires me and troubles me. Let's hear from one person who has pure inspiration. Let's hear from one person who has some concerns and inspiration. Feel free to unmute yourself. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess for me, um, I've been... Uh, getting back into uh, Jewish ed education and reading uh, Tolishkin's uh, Jewish literacy. But one thing that I've noticed and one thing that I think the Megillat uh, Esther really highlights is, um, and, you know, people can agree or disagree as, you know, um, as is uh, usual, um, many Jews, many different opinions, but I think What's really inspiring and empowering is um, that we we see the power of women, and I, I think we look throughout Jewish history. Um, we've seen how women have, you know, there, a lot of times there's a lot of focus on the patriarchs. But I think when you take a closer look at the matriarchs and the women throughout um, our history, you see just how much they've um, shaped the people that we are from, from the background. 
And, um, you know, I I know a lot of people um, have their thoughts about um, our tradition. And, you know, I think in some cases people think, especially in the more observant um, world, that women are not empowered. Um, But I, I think... You know, it says something really special about who we are and who we are, who we are as a people and as a tradition um, and a family, a mishpucha, that uh, we really do our best to uh, empower everyone, but also make sure that um, women are um, lifted up and recognized. Right. And really Thank cool. you, Nicholas. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Someone on the troubled side. What's something that troubles you? Yeah, Eileen. Yeah. Okay, so I'm reading the book of V. Um, Esther is a hero of circumstance. If in fact she doesn't survive, she cannot help Mordecai or her people. And in terms of being a powerful woman, I don't know that she really used that power. She was extremely manipulative. And remember, she has a dinner with both uh, Haman and the king in order to put her cards on the table and tell Haman, hey, you think I'm a little innocent? Well, I'm not. Mm, Okay, very interesting. Okay, friends, we could talk about the Megillah all day. We're not going to do it. Um, but feel free to chat on the side if you want to share some thoughts of something that inspires you in the Megillah, something that troubles you in the Megillah. All of that is great learning. And we're going to jump into Bona, Bona. Well, our last two Malachot were about the creation and destruction of lines on paper, like with drawing and erasing. This Malacha, the 34th, is Bona. Bona means building, involving the creation or assembling of a structure. Building seems like perhaps the most obvious malacha of Shabbat, given how inherent physical labor is to the enterprise, right? When you think of erasing something, you don't think, oh, this is laborious. I just ruined my Shabbat experience by erasing something. You think of like building like a house, you'd be like, oh, that's not very restful. I mean, maybe some people find it restful. (laughs) God built the world, and in that labor resulted in what we see and feel and what we hear around us. But as we also know, God rested. While the world was complete, the human being, the apotheosis of creation itself, was left incomplete. That final decision to rest gives us a profound insight in the divine mind that God passed the task to construction of this fragile world to every person. Consider this fascinating passage in the Zohar, from Zohar Chadash. Rabbi Yochanan said, why were humans created in the image of God? As it says, God created humans in God's image. It is like a king who ruled his kingdom and built small fortresses and repaired works in the city. And all the members of the city were subjugated to him. One day, the king called to all the city dwellers and appointed his minister over them. He said, until now, I would see to all the needs of this city and build towers and fortresses. From now on, he will be as I am. So what a fascinating, um, what a fascinating image to have of kind of the role of the creation of the human being, that there's a fortress and a tower, and we were kind of appointed 
as kind of the guardians of the planet, the guardians of the, of, of the life experience. As humans created in the image of God, we have been created magisterially with the human responsibility to be in palaces. We are not to be gluttons. Instead, we are tasked to look over the world and care for creation. Consider why Avraham built mansions. Did you know Avraham built mansions? Okay, neither did I. Until I saw this Avot de Rabbi Natan. Avraham would go forth and make his rounds, and wherever he found travelers, he would bring them to his house. Uh, uh, Eddie, this is a great um, this is a great text to use for immigration. Also, everything with Abraham is great for refugees and immigration. But, anyways, he would make his rounds, and wherever he found travelers, he would bring them to his house. To the one who was accustomed to eating wheat bread, he gave wheat bread to eat. To the one who was accustomed to eating meat, he gave meat to eat. To the one who was accustomed to drinking wine, he gave wine to drink. Moreover, he built stately mansions on the highways and left food and drink there so that every traveler stopped there and thanked God. That is why delight of the spirit was vouchsafed to him. And whatever one might ask for was to be found in Avraham's home. Isn't this amazing, this Midrash, right? That Avraham wasn't like, I'm going to build mansions and rent them out so I can gain more wealth. Nothing. I'm not making an anti-real estate comment. People are allowed to own real estate. They're allowed to, you know, accumulate wealth. But he built mansions so that wanderers, foreigners, strangers could be like, there's an empty mansion. I'm going to go in. And it's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears or something. I, I forgot how that story goes. I, I've never told it to my kids. But, but thinking from 35 years ago, the, the story, right? You walk in and there's an empty mansion and whoa, guess what? There's some meat and wine and bread on the table. And guess what? It must be for me because Abraham left a note being like, everyone come and enjoy, right? And so this idea that God, I love this uh, Midrash because this idea that God created the world and then left us in charge of the palace of existence on this planet. And then we, Abraham's like, I want to be like that. So Abraham starts creating mansions. Isn't that awesome? I mean, that, hey, has anyone ever seen this midrash? So Abraham starts creating mansions and being like, okay, just come in and get whatever you want. There's not even going to be somebody there. Just come enjoy. Okay. Sadly, materialism rules the world. And many people seem to care more about the palaces than about using them to peer out upon meaningful responsibility. People care more about building more mansions for themselves rather than thinking of themselves as stewards. Consider the Midrash that says, when a worker, when a worker fell from the Tower of Babel, no one cared. But when a brick fell, the builders wept. The builders wept. Think about that today, too. How much pain someone feels when, ooh, the NASDAQ is down, ooh. Right. But then they hear of another COVID death. Like, oh, another COVID death. Like, okay, that's sad, but that's the reality of the world. Like people die, you know, but NASDAQ, oh, we can build cold towers of isolation or we can build bridges of empathy and compassionate understanding. We need to have pure saintly motives for all that we build, of course, uh, as much as possible. And so the Talmud famously records. Actually, it's not exactly the Talmud. It's, it's, a, it's a Midrash, the Bereshit Rabbah. And behold, it was very good. This refers to the evil inclination. But is the evil inclination very good? How strange. However, were it not for the Yetzirah, a person wouldn't build a house, wouldn't get married, 
wouldn't procreate and have children and wouldn't engage in business. Very famous source that basically says the inclination to do evil is very productive for the world and part of the divine plan that we need not have always pure motives, right? Someone might have, um, who's someone who's trying to have children might be having sex because they love their partner, might be having sex because it feels nice, might be having sex because they're trying to have children. And those many motives, someone might be doing business because they want to make lots of money and because their business is good for the world. That's also okay. Someone might be um, building a house for lots of different reasons. And so we understand that that um, it's okay. If someone was only in it for greed or was taking a job only for money and disagreed with you know, what it was about, ultimately what the work was about or, or didn't really care about it at all, that would feel like a bad approach. Um, but if someone had multiple motives, okay. And so we see also here, indeed self-interest accompanies higher motives when we are building a home and building the world. So what kinds of structures do we wish to build in the world? Like if you were going to leave a monument in the world as your legacy, of course, our legacies don't have to be physical structures, but if you were going to leave one, what would that look like? Rav Cook writes in, Ola, in Olat Raya, for the building is constructed from various parts and the truth of the light in the, of the world will be built from various dimensions, from various approaches. For these and those are the words of the living God. It is precisely the multiplicity of opinions which derive from variegated souls and backgrounds, which enriches wisdom and brings about its enlargement. In the end, all matters will be properly understood and it will be recognized that it was impossible for the structure of peace to be built without those trends which appeared to be in conflict. Isn't this amazing? What he's saying is you might think all these conflicts we have, of course, there are some conflicts that we wish one side to simply disappear, <laughs> uh, one side of the argument that is. Um, but there's others, and we're gonna see this in our debates class, how the conflict of ideas is necessary for the structure of society we're looking to ultimately build, the structure of community we're looking to build and the type of shalom that can exist. And so Rav Cook is teaching that to have a structure of peace, it must be built upon the foundations of conflict. This is why I remain hopeful that in the um, uh, in the uh, it's a, uh, in the conflict in the Middle East, that this conflict, the intensity of the conflict, um, is a reminder uh, of how deep the peace will one day be. Because um, if it was a shallow conflict, then perhaps it wouldn't be fully resolved when there was peace. You may have actually just heard that the Biden administration has signaled that they are not as, as virtually every past presidential administration tried to do, trying to have some grand peace process. Um, oh, we're gonna make it happen. We're gonna make it happen. Rather, they want to have some little bits of uh, progress in regards to suffering, take on little battles rather than big wins, so to speak. And um, this, this lines up with Micha Goodman's uh, book, if you read that, around um, the goal right now is not peace. Nobody's talking about peace with any real hope, but rather uh, reduction of suffering. So in any case, I do think that this Rav Cook teaching could help us understand many things, but one of them can be that this conflict, if we truly understand it, can lead to the most lasting and global model for peace where people think are, uh, have become cynical. This is to say that only by embracing the messiness of real life can we achieve a sustainable peace. 
Healthy relationships have disagreements, disagreements where all parties are treated with dignity. We work to build a safe and more peaceful world. To do so, we must often embrace conflicts to advance societal progress. This is not only work for us, but for our children. On this note, the Talmud teaches that sages increase peace in the world. Sages, this is called Chachamim Marbim Shalom Be'olam from Brachot. But Rav Cook explains that they only increase peace through argumentation. It is written in this Talmudic passage that we should learn not to treat the next generation as banayich, as your children, but rather as bonayich, your builders, right? Not just your children, but your builders of the world. Our children will have peace as the builders of a new world where conflict no longer exists or exists very differently. These children are the dreamers and the idealists we need to shatter our skepticism, or God forbid, our cynicism. What children so often don't always understand, however, is how to transition. To learn how to transition takes years of experience. When I entered adulthood, on a personal note, I knew a lot about change, entering into new situations and new contexts, but I knew very little about transitions, the psychological process of adapting to change. The most important step I didn't know about was how, how we need to mourn and let go of the past before we can adequately start to adapt to the future. I wish I knew that when I switched from an earlier interfaith context to an immersed Jewish context. And I wish I knew that when my family hit major immediate financial hardship and when my parents got divorced. I needed to learn to mourn a certain type of family model I once took for granted. I needed to learn how to let go of a past type of stability that could no longer serve me. I wish I knew that when I celebrated the birth of my first child, I thought it was pure joy, but I hadn't yet let go of an identity, an earlier marriage lifestyle that I knew so well. We often think that growth means we need to change, but it is more. We need not only to change behaviorally and intellectually, but to transition psychologically. In a book called Managing Transitions, the author writes, chaos is not a mess, but rather it is the primal state of pure energy to which the person returns for every true new beginning. This comes from William Bridges and Susan Bridges' book, Managing Transitions, Making the Most of Change. Indeed, we don't achieve peace and then remain there. Rather, in each major transition, we return to chaos a chaos of quote-unquote pure energy. They write that there are three phases of transition. Okay? Three phases of transition. So let me remind us, growth is not about change. Growth is about embracing the, the transitions that emerge within change. First, letting go of the old ways and the old identity people had. This first phase of transition is an ending and the time when you need to help people to deal with their losses. Secondly, going through an in-between time when the old is gone, but the new isn't fully operational. We call this time the neutral zone. It's when the critical psychological realignments and repatterings take place. And thirdly, coming out of the transition and making a new beginning. This is when people develop the new identity, experience the new energy, and discover the new sense of purpose that makes the change begin to work. 
right? So think about when somebody hasn't embraced this. Have you ever met someone who, you know, let me use an absurd number because I don't want to minimize a smaller number, someone who's had like seven marriages and but like immediately goes into the next marriage um, after the first one ends, or even maybe they go into it even before the first one ends. Um, like actually they, yes, there's a lot of change, but they never allow themselves to transition. And I always like to say to people who are getting divorced, take a little time take a little time to process this, to live in this before you enter a new relationship or not even with divorce, with ending any relationship. Um, it's also important, um, if possible, between jobs. Sometimes people go right from one job into another job, but the ability to take um, some time uh, to truly transition. Uh, and lots of other things, um, having children. Some people have one child and they're, they're in a race to have a next child. And of course there's reasons for that. But, um, uh, but part of this is they're saying not only step one, letting go and step three, transitioning into the new thing, but this neutral zone in number two, where things are not fully operational yet, the habits aren't in place yet, where someone um, starts to really engage in the psychological realignments and repatterings. So when we discover this new energy, we reignite our sense of purpose. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You've heard that before? I love that, right? We don't just, um, we don't just uh, give tasks in society uh, of what needs to happen. We need to together long for the immensity of the sea and understand uh, that building as being a part of that. We will build a future by transcending our resentments and angers of the past. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, and yet I must, for the sake of my children and theirs not yet born, I cannot build the future on the hatreds of the past, nor can I teach them to love God more by loving people less. The duty I owe my ancestors who died because of their faith is to build a world in which people no longer die because of their faith. I honor the past, not by repeating it, but by learning from it, by refusing to add pain to pain, grief to grief. That is why we must answer hatred with love, violence with peace, resentment with generosity of spirit, and conflict with reconciliation. Very important. This is not just a sweet idea, but how we build the future by actually a codified Jewish law about building. The Talmud records a fascinating disagreement here from the, the um, from Gittin, from Gittin. I, I, and I love this. I think this is incredibly important. You can apply this to a lot of things. And if a beam wrongfully appropriated has been built into a palace, let me unpack that first line. What happens? You steal a beam, you steal it, someone steals a beam, and then they build their house using that beam. The rabbis taught, if a person wrongfully takes a beam and builds it into a palace, Beit Shammai said that they must demolish the whole palace and restore the beam to its owner. Beit Hillel, however, says the latter can claim only the money value of the beam so as not to place obstacles in the ways of penitence. Okay, friends, this is, uh, 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 this is called Takana Tashavim. And the way I normally use it is in regards to um, the re-entry process into society for an ex-felon. So what is the halakha? If you steal something, you must return what you stole. Somebody goes and they steal somebody's lawn chair 
because it's on the front lawn and they think, oh, maybe it's for bulk trash. You ever had that happen? You lose it. <laughs> Yeah, someone stole my son's Bat- Batmobile. Remember that fa- Batmobile? If you have ever listened to my personal stories, you know the story about my son's Batmobile and how we got it. And then some way someone stole it from our driveway. I was so upset. And I was like, okay, maybe they thought it was bulk trash, which makes no sense because it, it was a new Batmobile and it was in the driveway. <laughs> but okay, I was trying to give uh, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, in any case, um, someone steals the lawn chair and then you find the person and it, it, they're your neighbor. And you say, okay, give me back my lawn chair. They got to give back what they stole, right? Great. Okay. But what happens when the whole structure has been built upon it? The whole structure has been built upon it. So Beit Shammai says, I don't care. The halakha is the halakha. They stole the beam. You got to dismantle the house and return the beam. Dismantle the house and return the beam. Okay. Um, Beit Hillel says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No one is going to do teshuva. No one is going to correct their path. If you make it that hard for them, let them return the $50 value of the beam rather than dismantle the whole house. We want to make it possible for people to grow and change, make it possible for them. So too, when people are doing teshuva and they're going to re-enter society after being incarcerated, how do we think about it being possible for them to grow and change, right? Let me give another example. How does America deal with our history of racism? not just history, but current reality. How does America deal with slavery? America has never dealt with slavery. Some people basically say, let's call, them, let's call it the radical view. I'm not seeking to discredit it by calling it radical. The radical view says dismantle America as we know it, right? America is built on white supremacy. You basically have to dismantle all of America as we know it to dismantle white supremacy. Others say, whoa, 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 that's not gonna happen. Let's just try to eradicate racism in ways that we can, okay? And let's have reparations. Let's have reparations put in place. But you, but you don't need to take away every mansion from someone rich to kind of deal with slavery as it once existed. You don't have to dismantle everything that names that um, was built by a slave owner um, 250 years ago uh, in order to get there. Rather, let's try to correct the wrongs uh, and make it possible for everyone to be on board or as many people that was possible to do that. So this is this is a, a very important Talmudic passage to understand how we move forward um, while still finding justice in past wrongs. Okay, I, I'd love to hear more thoughts on that. As we conclude, I'm, I'm moving to the last, uh, last uh, few thoughts here. The practical halakha naturally follows Hillel. Hillel, you return the monetary value as usual. So... Here's what it says in the Shulchan Aruch, in Choshen Mishpat. According to the letter of the law, whoever steals is required to return the stolen object himself. This is the Ikar Hadin, the letter of the law. For it is said, he would restore the robbed item which he robbed, even if he stole a beam and built it into a large mansion. This is the biblical law. Would require someone to destroy the entire building and return the beam to its owner. But the Chachamim Chazal, the sages instituted, as the Takanat Hashavim, the ordinance of the penitents, that he should repay the value of the beam and not forfeit the entire building. Friends, this once again is the radical nature of Jewish thought built into the oral law. The fact that we are not a people of the book, of the, of the Chumash, of the Torah, we are a people of reinterpretation. We are a people of a Talmudic process. And what the sages did is nothing less radical than took one of the Ten Commandments and said, thou shall not steal, and said, no, we can't live in a world like that. We can't live in a world where we ask people to return what they stole. 
Yes, there are times we can do that, but there's a lot of times we can't, right? Um, Bernie Madoff is not going to be able to return what he, what he stole, right? Um, and a whole bunch of other people, when a society is built, when a community is built, when wrongs have been done, are not going to be able to do that. We need to build a world not on truth and not on perfect justice, but on peace and on restoration and reconciliation. And so they uprooted, they uprooted the Torah law of returning stolen objects and said, no, we've got a different way to do that. It was incredibly radical. To build a more just society, we cannot destroy those who make mistakes. We need to make it possible for everyone to engage in teshuva, in moral growth. Traditionally, we refer to God three times a day in the Amidah as Bone Yerushalayim. Isn't that a great name of God? One of the things I love about tefillah, about Jewish prayer, is you find infinite names for God. It's not just Hashem or Ado Shem or Elohim or Shakai, Shaddai, um, and, and so on and so on. But one of them is Bone Yerushalayim. God is the Builder of Jerusalem. What, I mean, what an interesting name, right? Indeed, we are partners in that holy work. Today, on the one hand, you have to be builders and guardians of Jerusalem. And at the same time, guardians of the idea of Jerusalem. The idea. You, you have to physically build the earthly Jerusalem and keep alive the power, energy, and uniqueness of the heavenly Jerusalem. The ideal and the reality. Building is not only about expanding, but also about protecting. Consider the Torah commandment to build a fence to enclose a flat roof of a house so no one can fall down. Part of building is about securing as we build. Right? Think about building a family. That doesn't mean simply procreating, but building a family culture, building a nation. Right? It doesn't just mean building structures, but building an ethos, building a culture. This notion is also true as we build the future of Torah life. We do not merely confine and conserve what Torah once was. Rather, when we encounter new ideas, we often have the opportunity to expand the Torah. Rev. Cook put it best, and I quote this all the time, I think it's one of his most important ideas. He said, we should not immediately refute any idea which comes to contradict anything in the Torah, but rather we should build the palace of Torah above it, right? A new ideology emerges in the world, and we don't just automatically discredit it, but we think, how can Torah expand in relationship to this new technology or ism? Okay, to conclude, as it says in Tehillim in Psalms 89.3, Olam chesed yibane. You know that song? Olam chesed yibane. The world shall be built on love. The world shall be built on love. Olam chesed Rabbi Yehuda HaChasid wrote, I will build an altar from the broken fragments of my heart. What a beautiful thought, right? Think about that. That when you have a broken heart, you have pain, you have suffering, you can build an altar from it. Indeed, building involves pain and tears, but it is precisely from this toil of life that we will build, we will bring our ultimate offering, our most true service, cultivating lives of service to peace and love so that this world will no longer experience hate, fear, and needless conflict. Okay, friends, I'd love to hear from you on any of this.
I was just wondering if the 40 arguments, best art, uh, debates, were all going to be about Hillel and Shammai. <laughs> it is amazing. Um, we, we could indeed, Cheryl, build that whole series on just Hillel and Shammai. It is amazing how much was um, at stake there. And, but what's also amazing is they, de- they almost always, and I'll, I'll share with you an interesting exception, which will be one of our topics, almost always debate rules and laws. They very rarely debate the conceptual realm. Whereas our, our series is going to look conceptually at debates rather than just at rules and laws. It is interesting to debate, debate rules and laws. Um, but uh, and I'll give one exception. One exception they have is they debate, was it good for humans to have been created? Essentially, do humans experience more joy and suffering in human condition? And, um, and, that, and that is an exception for them because they were legalists. They were legalists debating literally everything. Um, as you recall, one of the most famous was, should we be embracing of converts or push converts away? That's one of, the, one of their many famous debates among many others. So yes, uh, Cheryl, I think it would, be, it, it would be a lot of fun. And, and, and I'm sure the debates of Hillel and Shammai will emerge countless times. Um, rebuilding is much, much harder than building. When something is destroyed, either physically or um, within society, it's just so much harder to get back. And I'm thinking of two things. One, the environment, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's almost the point of no return, and yet it still goes on and on. Um, And once it's shattered, it's shattered. The the other thing is, like, as you mentioned, slavery and with us as a course of bad treatment of our First Nations people. And so what South Africa did, and and I'm not saying it's a great place, it's not, but um, thanks to Nelson Mandela, there wasn't a mass slaughter going both ways after the apartheid fell, was that they had a truth and reconciliation process, which apparently was quite successful. And our current TM of Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau, has been working with truth and reconciliation with our First Nations people. Um, and for some, it's, it's too late. I heard an interview with someone, with a First Nations person, who was very sincere, and he just, he wants no part of Canada. He wants to be able to just have his own land. Um, and some are trying, but you know, maybe what the U.S. is is really a truth and reconciliation, a, a government process of going through what was done, going over slavery and Jim Crow and all the rest, and trying to make reparations in any way possible, and having a public discussion on it. Yeah, thank you, Lauren, for that. That's there's there's really a lot to say there, and I, I'm um there's so much to say on the last bit that I that I won't, but on the first bit, um, this point is really important actually. So, uh, so any guesses on what the malacha next week is? So, Sarah, destroying a structure. So we'll talk about that next week. B- this is building, and next is destroying a structure. And in fact, what is much easier and much more common is you build something, it's not perfect, so you destroy it and you try to build something new, right? And the grass is always greener, right? Um, and so, you know, you jump out of a marriage and you find your new marriage up. Oh, 
same problems are here or different problems. You jump out of a job. You're like, oh, this is so exciting. I got a new job. And you're like, wait a minute. This has actually got a whole host of problems here too, right? You leave a country. You move to another country. People are like, oh, I'm out of here. I'm and you're like, oh, this is great. A whole new beginning. The excitement of a new beginning. This is going to be perfect for me. And all of a sudden you realize, whoa, actually nothing's perfect. Or you move from one house to a next. Like, this is amazing. This is the home I dreamt of. All of a sudden you're really unhappy with your new home, you know? And so, you know, it's really exciting to just... Um, to like abandon or escape something and jump in something entirely new or destroy something and build something all new. Really exciting. It feels totally liberating and amazing. This new beginning, we, we crave new beginnings. We crave new beginnings. And, um, and then those new beginnings uh, go fade quickly. But rebuilding, as Lauren said, just before Eileen, uh, as Lauren said, rebuilding is incredibly, um, that's where resilience is learned. When something starts to break, and you figure, and you have to learn how to fix it. You ha- how to how to escape. I always think it's funny when people are like, let's figure out how to have life on the moon. Well, we're gonna move to Mars because climate change. Ah, we can't figure. Let's just get out. Let's get out of here. You know what I mean? No, no, we gotta figure out how to fix this planet. We gotta do our work here, right? And so rebuilding is where you learn resilience. You learn much more than just resilience. You learn love. You learn love because um, real love is not the first stage of a relationship that's that's conflict free. Real love emerges um, in learning how to navigate conflicts together and the healing process where trust is really built. Yeah, Eileen. Okay, no matter where you are or where you're going, you're still you and you take all of your problems with you. That's right. So the idea that the next marriage is gonna be perfect, the next country is gonna be perfect, rests on an unstable basis because until you yourself change, rebuild your character, you're not going to be able to find the perfect place. You know, it's interesting. Um, that's, that's very interesting. And I think that it's worth us thinking about ourselves, how we think about um, our, um, our, our conflicts of the past. Many people um, with a lower self-esteem, unfortunately, um, think of themselves as the fault of their conflicts. My marriage failed, it was my fault. I got fired from a job, it was my fault. Um, And other people, they blame others. Like that job was horrible and toxic and I'm just glad I'm out. That that marriage was horrible and toxic, I'm glad. It's simply the other person's fault, which is also of course problematic. But this middle ground of learning a mature response to, um, to one's past, that says, yes, of course, other people like were negative forces. But if I don't own the parts um, of my past job, my past relationship, my past whatever, that were areas that I was failing, I'm going to find myself in another big mess. I think you're exactly right. And these transitions from one relationship or one culture to another are so crucial to reflect on exactly that point. Yeah, I see people who jump from synagogue to synagogue. And, and, and there's lots of reasons people do that. But one is that they can't handle being in a community. They find themselves in a major conflict with their rabbi or with the community. All of a sudden, they're in a new one. They, they founded a new one. I, I know people who have literally founded four synagogues because it's like they founded it and then eventually they hired a rabbi. Oh, I hate this rabbi. And they go find a new synagogue, you know, or let me give one more example before we open it up again. Um, you know, there's um, there. You ever heard of the concept of a ball chuva? A bald chuva. So there's a positive context of a bald chuva and a negative context, in my view. A positive context is a bald chuva in its literal sense means someone who was erring and now uh, corrects their path. 
But what it means in the Kiruv world, in the, in the uh, ultra-Orthodox outreach world, is someone you get uh, to be religious from zero to 60. There's many of those groups here in, in my local town. I won't name them. They, they're very good at raising money from people who are, are not Orthodox because they, they kind of uh, say they're doing something different than they're doing. Oh, we're just promoting love of Judaism. Um, but in fact, many times what they're trying to do is zero to 60. They're trying to get someone who has no Jewish connection into basically a black hat world. And the most common people they find to make that transition are people um, who are, uh, um, uh, have a lot of brokenness in their experience right now and are deeply craving um, that type of embrace and that type of certainty of like, oh, you're lost. You, don't, you can't find friends on campus. You're alone. You're going through this or that, right? Like, it's all going to be good. Come to us. We'll give you a shot of, you know, give, give you some shots of whiskey, tell you you're, you're amazing and like put on this black hat and you'll have figured out everything in the world. And um, this is another case where I, I always like to say, if people come to me and they're trying to convert or they're trying to get religious really quickly or something, I try to say like, I try to figure out, are you running from something? Are you running from something that's not resolved? Uh, because just like someone who wants to run from one marriage into the next real quickly or one relationship into the next real quickly, running from one major trauma into a whole new culture of life um, can also be very problematic. I say, so, well, let's slow down. Let's slow down. What do we need to resolve before adding new major changes in life? You know, as if, yeah, because people can think some major change in my life. If I start wearing a black hat or if I move countries or I take on a whole new career, my other past problems are going to fall away. Well, hold on. We got to deal with those past problems before we enter a whole new, right? Okay. Someone else. Um, so rabbis, uh, I heard you talk, um, well, as I've been listening to all of this, uh, one of the things I thought of was um, from Genesis onwards, we, we look at different moments where um, people have erred in some way, and then Hashem says, okay, I'm going to like wipe you all out and find a new people, like start over. Right. And we have different moments where, you know, whether it's Sodom and Gomorrah or whether it's um, uh, other moments throughout Jewish history where, uh, you know, patriarchs have, you know, pleaded, well, wait, don't destroy everyone. There's got to be, you know, like some amount of, you know, goodness in the world and humanity. And I think um, that that's what we're talking about is also true of God you know, and how we were able to work with God to say, well, okay, you can't destroy us the first time that, you know, we, we do something that you don't like, you know, you have to be able to let us learn and grow from, um, you know, what we did and become better people. But, you know, uh, that's something that I thought of, and I thought it was a cool uh, parallel. Awesome. Great. I love this. It's very helpful to think about how we think about punishments in disciplining children, how we think about the, the uh, systems of mass incarceration, and how we think about growth and change. But it's also um, really helpful to think about kind of, um, uh, and I say this with all reverence, but kind of um, a less mature manifestation of the divine in the earlier parts of the Torah. Which is which is not me is not a critique of God as much as God is responding to an, an immature um, uh, manifestation of humanity, and so the response there is is wipeout. You see it as you mentioned, 
you see it, um, you see it with the flood, you see it with Sodom, you see it with um, the Egyptians in the water. Um, and of course, the, the end result of, of, of Sodom is God was right, not Abraham, right? Uh, it ends with, yeah, if there were 10 righteous, they're not going to be destroyed. But in fact, there weren't. So God has to destroy it. Like there was actually nothing irredeemable. And yet we see that God regrets the flood. And in the Talmud says, God even repents, even repents um, that there's some degree of like, wow, I can't build a world on truth and justice. God realizes that like the world is built on love and compassion and forgiveness. You can't build a, a world on that. And um, that relationship to destructing um, really uh, comes back to bite us. When we burn things down, um, we burn things down to thinking they're going to go away. You know, and here's an interesting thing also in um, how we think about terrorism. Perhaps there's some hawks among us who think fire and shoot, find every terrorist you can and fire and shoot. You know, perhaps there's other people who think, um, you know, you can never... You can never kill every terrorist. The, the, you know, go, the, the hawkish approach will never work. You have to take a fundamentally pacifist approach. And others might take a middle ground of how you show military force, but how you engage in process of diplomacies and so you know societal cultural change at the same time. How do we eradicate that which appears to be um, that which appears to be evil? And how do we respond to that in ways that, in a sustainable way, uproot it? Yeah, Nona. Um, I was gonna. I was thinking that. Um... Um, a lot of what you talked about seems so appropriate right now in this space of um, our swinging from one um, political belief system to another back and forth, back and forth with um, not a lot of capacity to um, find a common ground and just go from one set of values to another. And what an interesting opportunity we're in. We're in a real neutral ground right now um, with the pandemic pause that we have been given to um, reflect on how we build back sort of everything in our society and how we look at the climate and how do we integrate justice and environmental truths into our work and how we try to, I, I, don't, I don't see this country having the maturity to have a truth and reconciliation type of process soon, partly because everything's still so raw in the transition, I think, but I think in the process of resuming rational approaches to things and trying to integrate some sense of there being more than one perspective on things, um, we have a capacity, we have a moment to do that in that is really unique. And hopefully we will have the maturity and wisdom to figure out how to yeah. do something with that. Amazing. Seesawing doesn't work. Totally. Very. So, no, no, let me just say one thing about that important point, um, which is that sometimes one of the questions we can ask ourselves, and tell me if this resonates for you or not, um, what emotion is taking up too, too much space in my life that it's not allowing for other emotional experience? And sometimes that can be fear. Sometimes that can be anger or whatever it is. But in this case, it can be yearning. Sometimes we yearn so much for a next era that we don't allow a space for that reflective experience, that transition, that change. So for example, someone yearns so much for COVID to be under control, I can get back to my normal life. So much of that space is just this anticipation, this yearning that we don't allow ourselves to be re reflect and be like, well, when that comes, as it will soon, 
right? How will I live differently, right? Or, oh, I'm yearning for this political era to end, for this new one to end. Oh, good, it's finally done. Now I'm just relieved and now let's just enjoy this. As opposed to being like, well, what happened there? I want to make sense of that. And what's happening now? And how do I make sense of this? And rather than just feel relief and feel, um, you know, those emotions, to actually go through a process of reflection and transition. I think it's so important what you're saying here. Um, and uh, yeah, anyways, lots more to say about that, but no, no, I think you're gonna respond. I was just gonna say one thing that I think is interesting about needing time to reflect that is a big concern for me on environmental work, which is where I have a big passion, is that we don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of physical time right. to do the work we need to do. And we're so slow in our process. Well, I, I actually think a lot is happening underneath percolating that um, is not policy yet. So hopefully by the time policy catches up, there will have been a percolation in the population. But I, I worry profoundly about humans' capacity to make the changes we need to make in the little bit of time we have to do it in. Yeah, very well said, very well said. And I think that, I know I would extend that even further, that we have very little time to do everything we wanna do um, and everything we need to do. And the urgency of us finding our clarity on our purpose. Uh, and one, one of them most certainly being about the process of how we treat the environment. Um, but actually um, this journey of life is very fast and there could be no more urgency than continuing daily to get clarity on our moral purpose. Yep. Someone else here. Rabbi, I've got a question about the notion of Bill. Okay, uh, okay, we're going to hear from Eric, and then we're going to hear from Vicky, and that's probably our time. Yeah, go for it, Eric. Eric, I'll make it quick. So Jewish oh, texts have always, uh, and you've talked in the past about the moderation has been a healthy way to when it comes to growth, um, and we've talked about it in those today in building about which I think has been a fascinating topic. But it seems like the Jewish text would say that moderation would be the the appropriate interpretation of the of the pace for building. Um, in different capacities. My question is, where do you see moderation is not the appropriate interpretive pace when it comes to building in whatever capacity it is? Okay, that's a great question. That, that's a really great question, Eric. And um, here's another case where we see kind of an outside philosophy that, that emerged in Jewish thought, where the golden mean um, was brought into Jewish thought by Maimonides, through Aristotelian ethics, where Maimonides was really the first to teach a, a Jewish value um, explicitly that the golden mean is the goal. Of course, um, he, gives, uh, he gives one exception. In all of the traits of character that Maimonides is looking at, the one exception he gives is um, as anger. Um, is anger and in relationship to humility as well. Um, in, in that, um, in some things, he says, there's a balance. You don't wanna be a glutton, but you also don't wanna be an ascetic, right? You don't wanna be breaking yourself down, but you also don't wanna be arrogant, right? Okay, there's a middle ground in all these character traits, you know, and, um, uh, and, and I'm sure we can extend that in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, you know, the most, you know, the most obvious one we talk about in terms of uh, philanthropy is you don't want to make yourself poor, but you also have to stretch yourself, right? And there's a lot of cases like that. Um, but, but in regards to anger, he thinks, um, as, as there's other many teachings in the Jewish tradition, that um, anger is purely destructive. Oh, it's not like a little bit of anger will be healthy. 
you know, and here are, we're bracketing what we love to talk about post 1960s of righteous indignation and anger fueling movements. We talk about that today, but generally we say the type of anger that is purely destructive, um, that it's actually not going to serve at all. And, uh, and in regards to humility, um, oh, it's not like you, oh, I should be a little bit arrogant. Oh, a little bit of arrogance is okay. Like actually uh, having a healthy, a healthy sense of humility. But in regards to the, your particular question of the pace, the, the pace of change today and where we should have urgency versus moderation, I think the question is stronger than any, any, any answer I can give to that. I think asking ourselves that question is, 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 the best, is the best answer I can give. Where in my life should I embrace urgency? This is so important that I am going to run almost like an extremist. I am going to run urgently to guarding and protecting and building this. And where in my life do I need to slow down, reflect, engage partnerships, engage process, engage in uh, a path of moderation? And um, I suspect we'll have some different answers of that, different answers in different times of our life. For example, when the doctor says, you're gonna have a heart attack if you don't cut out X, Y, and Z immediately. You'd be an extremist. You cut it out immediately. Ah, other times you say, oh, you know what? I'm going to be moderate. I'm just going to have a little bit of that. Live life and enjoy your life. I'll have a little bit of that, right? So there's going to be different stages. All right, Vicky, we're going to we're here from Vicky and then we're going to wrap up today. I'm just going to say, I'm not going to raise my question. I'm just going to say this has been a fabulous discussion. Exceedingly, exceedingly timely because it could be applied in so many different ways. And I was going to suggest another one, but for next time. And I think Vicky, moderation no, is Vicky, an important no, concept. Vicky, we're going to hear it. We're going to hear it. We're not, no, we're... no, I just, I want, I want to talk about, I'm very much um, confused, uh, troubled by this issue of renaming all of the schools and the monuments and tearing things down rather than figuring out how we're rebuilding our past and how that figures in it. So you'll leave that there for another okay. time. Okay. Take care. Amazing friends, let's continue to build the world together. One brick at a time, one one human dignity at a time. Have a you wonderful betcha. day. See you soon. Thanks hey, so much. Thank you. Purim, everybody. Oh, have a great Purim. Freilich and Purim. Try, try, try to give something to someone. That's the goal. Give something to someone. <laughs>